This is Omo. How's it going? I'm great, man. So I've got a really cool episode coming up. It is all about women. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. And so at some point I'm going to kick you out and just leave this uh, man-free zone. Yeah. And we're going to let the women talk. That's fair. I mean, I'm happy that you referred to me as a man. So I'll, I'll leave whatever you want. <laughs> okay, good. So hi, everyone out there. You're listening to Omo. I'm Rosie Deloach. I'm Christopher Jacoby. Thank you for listening. So, so again, yeah, we've got our story, Women at the Bench, for this episode. And have a little little mini historical story for you. Okay. Yeah. Have have you ever heard about the lore of... The barking spider in your room? Yes, my daughter is in the room making a little bit of noise. Yes. Hey, girl. (laughs) Yeah. So... Katerina. Katerina Guarneri. <laughs> Katerina Guarneri. Have you heard about this story? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's lore of the sort that is the most fun because there's no way to prove it one way or the other. But um, mm-hmm. so Del Jesu passed away in 1744. Is that right? Um. Okay. Uh, yes. I believe so. You're yeah. Right. And, and and so like mm-hmm. the, the very tip top of his, what people consider the instruments in his little golden period was 1742, 1743. Mm-hmm. And then in 1744, a great number of instruments popped out of his shop, even some after he had died, mm-hmm. which suddenly have wild F holes and wild scrolls on them. And the idea is that Katerina was who? So Katerina was, okay, so we've got the, let's back up. We have got the Guarneri family. Mm -hmm. Uh, And of course, as all of this goes, it's all surrounded in speculation. We have our best guesses, but we are living in conjecture land. I like it there. So at at the same time that Omobono was kicking it in Cremona, there was this other family two doors down from the Strad family, the Guarneris. Mm Mm-hmm. And there's a lot to cover about this family, which we will get into in a couple episodes. But for now, know that the Guarneris are made. They're yeah. in their third generation of building. They're on their fifth dude maker of note. <laughs> yeah. And and the Guarneris yeah. were, were coming into power with this family of instruments, um, along with the Amatis, whom we assume... And by timeline, also know that uh, they were the originators of the family of violin family instruments. But Andrea Guarneri's instruments were out there at the same time as Andrea Amati's. And they're stunning. And the two share mm-hmm. a very classical, similar form and size. And now here's where I'm showing where I didn't do my research. Andrea, is it the same as Phileas Andrea or are those two different? No, no. So uh, Andrea was grandpa. Okay. Filius Andrea Guarneri means son of Andrea, and that's Del Jesu, Giuseppe Guarneri's uh, father. 
father. So that's third generation. So Del J. Sue. And we call him Del J. Sue because he put a little cross on his on his labels. Okay, so the following story I'm recounting to you is from Roger Hargrave's website. Wonderbar. Which is a great source for history and some maker guides as well. You can visit at roger-hargrave.de. And his uh, base building step-by-step um, is not just about bases and it is perhaps one of the more important documents about forensic violin making, traveling okay. backward in time with method rather than just intent to try and work in the way that produces instruments worthy of, of being copies of the great Italians. Oh, cool. So Roger Hargrave, he's heard the conjecture that Del Jesu's wife helped him toward the end of his life and possibly continued constructing for the few years after his death before she remarried. There's historical accounts about her contribution, but some of those original sources, they're not from our favorite historical sources because they've been proven as inauthentic in some small way or another. Nevertheless, there's whispers of violins with Katarina's name on the label. No. Yes. Excuse me just a second. What's up, sweetie? Do you need something? You got it worked out? Hi, Margo. Okay. She got it worked out. So there are violins with Margot's yeah. name on the label. That's the end of the story. <laughs> Roger is invited to see just such a violin bearing the label. Katarina Guaneri Fisset, which means made. Fetch it. Fetch it. <laughs> Still means made. Sorry, sorry. You're cool. You had your storytelling voice. I'm sorry. I think that I'm so smart. And then... You are so smart. <laughs> Fetch, so, fetching the label, fetch it. <laughs> Cremone, anno 1749. I don't know how to say 1749 in Italian. He gets 20 minutes to inspect this thing. What? Yeah. Like, they're on a train, and there's a, a it's like that movie. A bomb on the train. Keanu Reeves, where if the, the train goes any slower. Yeah, it goes too slow. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. Go ahead. Lady. It's, it pressure's on. There's sweat on his brow. Roger decides the violin does not look Cremonese and the label doesn't look Cremonese. So it's like mm, two up. things that don't match. And even the year is off. She would have been married, remarried by 1749, which is what the label says. Uh-huh. So why the Guarneri last name? So story over, right? Case closed, right? I'm guessing that yes, the case is completely <laughs> closed at this time. Totally year. closed. <laughs> So, so here's more of the story that you were ready to jump into because you just like are a font of historical knowledge. Thank you. So Phileas Andrea, so not, not there's the dad and there's Andrea, the dad, then Phileas Andrea, the son. And then there's a bunch of Peter Guaneris all over the goddamn place. Yeah. We're not even talking about them. Yeah. So, so Phileas Andrea, he's making full steam until 1731. Yeah. He lives another nine years. So what was he doing in the meantime? He was cutting beautiful scrolls for his yes. ne'er-do-well son. <laughs> yeah, we think that perhaps before living in conjecture land, he fell ill and he couldn't work full time. But based on the style of his son's scrolls, he was probably helping out 
at his son's shop part-time mm-hmm. at Del Jesus' shop. Now, who was helping make after Phileas Andrea died in 1740? Well, we don't know. It couldn't have been a woman. It couldn't have been a woman. Because women aren't allowed to work on instruments. Never. Yeah. <laughs> but we do know the Del Jesu couple had no children. Really? Okay. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah. It doesn't mean that there's there's no other workers available. Mm-hmm. But Bearing she's remote. around and she's not taking care of children. Oh, and is that all that women are good for, Rosie DeLoach? <sighs> You walked right no. into that slope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to let the people decide. <laughs> I, I, I will. I'd like to now just say, I'm sorry I said that. Okay. <laughs> okay. Will Good. you accept my apology, please? And, and apologize to your wife. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, Fox wife, that I said that. So there's four years after her husband passed and before she remarried. Would she have just left all the tools and the half-constructed violins alone? Or would she have tried to make some money from it? I'd like to live in conjecture land and say... Yeah. This theory actually bothers me, Rosie. It bothers me the same way that, like, the the big, beautiful, big-hipped, big-boobied mother (laughs) sculptures got pulled out of the ground in Germany. And then somebody said, there was obviously a cult of the woman and everyone thought that the woman was the woman until the man became the woman and then the man started to be mean to the woman and the point isn't that it's not fascinating it's just that there's only conjecture yes there's only conjecture. so chris if we're voting with romance instead of reality then sure sure i vote her first violin maker of record but unfortunately we don't have any instrument that definitively proves they were hers. Well, maybe if they'd, yeah. you know, given Roger longer than 20 minutes on that exploding train. <laughs> he could have gotten to the bottom of it. Heck yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. Are you okay? Oh, we got to open up the dinner. <laughs> God helps the child what help herself. Mommy, I'm hungry. Oh, where were we? Okay, so yeah, we we just, we don't have any bullet. We've got two sources, but they're imperfect sources. And just like that cult of the mother, I like it and I want Mm -hmm. it to be true. Sure. Um, But I hear it as fact uh, parroted back to me a lot. And, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, until like Jenny Bailly, um, they're really... There weren't any women labeling their own stuff, and that that uh, that unicorn of the violin from the late 1740s would be so amazing. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, you mentioned Jenny Bailly out of Paris. She's making in the year 1900, mm-hmm. and so we suspect she's one of the very first female makers that we can actually record and not conjecture land. Yeah, and, uh, you know, taxes are paid, mm-hmm. uh, and we're, we're getting into the 20th century. Things are different, but taxes are yeah. paid through um, census taken by the church, and the church is very interested in patriarchal structures. Um, this is the sort of talking that's going to get me in trouble with somebody who actually it knows is. what's going on in Europe. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, if if you had 
a woman in the family that was doing the the main weight of making, the taxes were still going to be paid under the name of the patriarch of the family. And uh, he was going to put his name on everything. Yes. So there were no female makers. <laughs> That's why my daughters carve all of my scrolls and I keep them chained to a bench in the basement uh, playing Barney. And you give them no credit. No credit. No, okay. I give them mac and cheese twice a day, but no credit. Oh, my daughter would be so happy with that arrangement. <laughs> and greasy. Mm. So, yeah, we've got Jenny Bailly. There's uh, a lot of women after the Second World War. Something about that whole, you know, Rosie the Riveter, women going into the workforce like that also took hold a little bit in violin making. We've mm-hmm. got Berta Josephine Oh, I hope to say say this right. Obricht out of Vienna. Okay, yeah. yeah. And we've got our very own American den mother, Carlene Hutchins, who Excellent. pioneered a lot of uh, not tap tuning. What's the word? Like, like she figured out different modes. What is that? Do you remember? So she didn't. She didn't figure them out. And I'm uh-huh. gonna blank on the name of it. Um, but there is a way to vibrate a plate and have sand or particulate on it form Mm -hmm. uh different shapes um oh gosh all right let's have it homo sapiens give me both barrels but actually uh the the wonderful christopher germain on a trip to his shop with christopher olbricht a few years ago pulled up a black and white video from the like the 1920s or earlier um on youtube that showed a maker with a base bow covered in rosin bowing uh, uh, a violin plate and when he did the sand that he had put on the plate formed itself into the 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 shapes those like those weird like it's circles or it's like a diamond yeah so you damp the plate at a certain place and then you vibrate it and you can tell whether it's in harmony to the strictures you are trying to work to Oh, the brain part is enormous. <laughs> anyway, Caroline Hutchins worked with that a whole lot. And I've I've always had Lady Luthier heroes, Rosie. And even when I, yes. I so I'm I'm going to be forty soon. Even when I speak to people who are ten years older than me, that wasn't true for them. Mm-hmm. And uh, my Lady Luthier heroes include uh, Marilyn Wallen, Gabrielle mm-hmm. Cundert, um, and uh, blank out. <laughs> can't remember the name of sand shapes. I can't remember the name of women. <laughs> uh, it's uh, Julie Reed in, yes. in Manhattan, who has been a wonderful resource and a good friend to me and my family and to my instruments. You know, she wasn't allowed to make a cello because women couldn't handle making a cello. No, too much labor. Yeah, she and these other ladies... Um, really fought just for the basic respect of what they deserved as the fantastic craftspersons that they are. Mm -hmm. Um, They were told that women were suitable for doing touch-up and that they probably shouldn't get ahead of themselves other than Mm -hmm. that, you know. Jeez. (laughs) I want to give special thanks to Ben Hubbard and Robert Weindahl for uh, leading me down some of these paths when I was exploring some women in history. Mm Mm-hmm. So we have definitely got, we've got an interview with Aubrey Alexander. Abigail. Mm-hmm. Followed by Robin Sullivan and Corinthia Klein. Nice. Chicago represent. I do have to quickly mention that 
a lot of this recording happened during the polar vortex. So we keep talking about how cold it is and like all the humidity issues with their instruments. Oh, sweet. <laughs> you know, it's beautiful flowers right now. But, uh, but yeah, uh, I hope you guys enjoyed the listen. Thanks for joining me for this first part, Chris. Thank you for having me. And uh, you sit back and enjoy as well. I, so I got to I got to go out the um, oppressor's door now, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Bow your head. Guys, learning trade secrets is a fine string instrument making and restoration program where students and professionals can come and focus on specific topics of making and restoration to further their education and skills. LTS is currently hosting Violin Setup with my friend Tom Crone. Check out our Facebook page for photos and the students' progress. For more information and available benches for the courses offered by Learning Trade Secrets, visit www.learningtradesecrets.com. Well, I've got with me here Aubrey Alexander. Aubrey is a cello maker and restorer. You're currently at the uh, at Grand Rapids Violins. You started on this path back in 2007, and you've been at it ever since. Mm-hmm. Welcome, Aubrey. Hi, how are you? I'm great. Do you recall our first phone conversation that we had a few weeks ago? Um, yes, yes. Do you remember that the first thing we both did, we both did that girl thing where we're like, well, you've been at this longer, but you're better and you're more professional. And we both tried to dismiss our own credit. Uh, I, I don't remember, but I can see myself doing that all the, all the time. Yeah. We immediately did that. And then I think you referred to yourself some, as a hack. And... <laughs> there's, a, there's a story with hack. Um, okay. So I was, uh, when I was um, accepted into the, the Federation, I was in Philadelphia staying with some friends at Mount Airy by Lindsay mm-hmm. Bowes. Woohoo! Hi, guys. And um, when I got the news that I had been accepted, I was sitting next to, uh, well, this is actually after that, but later in the day, I was sitting next to Joe Cosgrove. And I said, well, I guess I'm not a hack anymore. And he says, no, you're the queen hack. Yeah. So I <laughs> That's my nickname. Yeah. I love it. Uh, I, I think you're much better than that. So um, I'm, I'm glad to have you here. I'm honored to have you here. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> uh, was there a moment in your past where it became clear to you that, that this is what you wanted to do, that you wanted to be involved in instrument making or restoration? Um, yes. So the first spark, um, I was pretty young. Um, it was it was before I had actually started to play the cello. My older sister played violin, and her violin was in the shop for some repairs. And my mom took me with her to pick up the violin, and I was just fascinated. I was enamored with everything. I made a beeline for the tool rack, and that was that was kind of the, you know the first little spark. Yeah. When I was just like, oh, this is so cool. And I think I was eight years old. I began playing cello shortly after that. Do you remember anything in specific about that space? Yes. I'm pretty sure that most of these details have been manufactured in my mind as I try to remember it. Sure. Um, but it was a house 
And it was across the street from my mom's school where my mom taught. And I remember walking in and there was a piano and then there was a workbench and then there was a dude um, <laughs> sitting mm-hmm. there with my sister's violin. Um, but And that's all I can really remember of it. Most of the details come from my mom. So you pass by this house all the time. Uh, but I had never noticed it before. Yeah. Like it was, uh, I, it just, it just looked like a house and this is in Texas. You know, you, you're, you're Texan. Yeah. Howdy. Howdy. (laughs) Um, so yeah, so that was spark number one. And then that's what really pushed me to look into violin making as a, as a career. Um, and I wanted to go right out of high school, but I did get a college degree first for which I am very glad that I did. Um, I have an accounting degree from Southwestern University. Um, so, so useful. In this yes. World. Oh, yes. My taxes are organized. I'm um, going to reach out to you in a couple of weeks. Well, I have I have an accountant, but you know, I'm like, I, I know just enough to be healthy and afraid of the IRS. So I let the other guy do it. But I prepare everything very beautifully. Lots of charts, lots of um, Excel files. It's wonderful. <laughs> I'd love to hear about your five years as a teacher at the Violin Making School of America in Salt Lake City. You talked to me earlier about learning to teach. Do you have any particular stories? Yes, I have. I have a lot, a lot of stories, a ton. Okay. Um, okay. Teaching is absolutely the hardest thing I have done in my life um, because such a large part of teaching has nothing to do with the actual thing you're learning about, the subject matter. Most of it has to do with the people. And um, you are essentially a diplomat in this situation. You need to be able to connect with your students. You need to figure out what they need, how they think, how they learn, um, and how you can best support and encourage them while simultaneously doing what is best for them. Uh uh They often disagreed on what was best for them. Um, But uh, the largest challenge for me as a teacher was not taking things personally. Sure. That definitely brought it home that only about 50% of this was actually about making violins. The other half is navigating around obstacles and personalities so that you can do the best for your students. Yeah. Realizing that people are bringing their own baggage. They have their Uh, own quirks. Their own quirks. Yeah. And teaching teaching one-on-one you have to you have to understand each individual student, and if you if you don't understand, that's where um, miscommunication and frustration can happen. And yes. you know you have to you have to do your absolute best for each student. And that was just that was very very hard for me to learn how to do. Now you are a resident luthier at Grand Rapids Violins. Mm-hmm. Tell me about what it's like being there. What's some of your favorite projects you've gotten to work on while you're while you're working there? I will say that my absolute favorite project is my workbench, um, but that's more of a joke. Um, as uh, like for the instruments that are in the shop, um, my oh, no, I want to hear you said workbench. Tell me more about that. My workbench is awesome. Um, okay. So it started out life as just a normal little sit down bench. And that was before I showed up in Grand Rapids. Uh, Kevin built this bench for me when I, before I came out from Salt Lake. And then my bench grew a, a little back storage area. Okay. And then it got under bench uh, like drawers so I can have my stuff in there. And then the most recent development is actually not the workbench itself, but this massive rolling 
neon blue tool chest that I just got. Um, and so you have Obbyland. There's a little corner of the shop that is, we call it Obbyland, and it's where all my crap is, like all my cello pieces. And But this, this bench has basically um, been growing of its own accord. And yeah, it's it's pretty spectacular. Uh, I just keep collecting more benches. I think I'm just going to have a big circle of benches. Well, eventually <laughs> I will exist within this bench. This bench will grow yeah. around me and you'll never see me anymore. Um, except for the one cello scroll just poking out at the top. Um, you'll have the one stool that ro- rotates 360. And <laughs> Yes! <laughs> That's going to... Oh my gosh, I'm going to make that happen. Yeah. Um, need a bigger shop space though. Uh, our shop is... Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know how we fit everything in there. Um, when I moved out from Salt Lake City to Grand Rapids, we were in a space that was, I think, either two thirds or half the size of what we have now. And we actually moved down the hallway. And as soon as we moved into this much larger space, everything just expanded. Mm-hmm. And, and now we're like, how did we ever fit all of this in that last space? Um, so like there's, so Grand Rapids Violins, the owners are Kevin Flannery and Matthew Noikos. And then there's Abby off to the side, you know, doing her her making and restoration thing. Mm-hmm. But so in one room, there's Kevin's bench, Matt's bench, Matt's rehair bench, the big bench, Abby's bench, and then two storage cabinets and three cellos in the process of being made. And all the things we're actually working on during the day, like restoration stuff. It's, yeah, all, all the things that walk through the front door that you just have to Yeah, take. I don't know how it all fits. Um, so, but like as far as like the instruments, um, like my favorite thing to do, um, I love full-on comprehensive setups. Like not just like, oh, I'm going to carve you a new bridge. No, I'm talking like getting to do a neck reset, hopefully a new fingerboard. And if I'm lucky, a new bass bar, like literally building all of the setup components together the way that we do it, um, along with normal things like sound post and bridge, starting from zero, a full setup. I could do that all day. Love it. I also really enjoy what I get to work on a lot, which are cello bombs. Um, Okay. Tell me what that means. A cello bomb is basically like a Humpty Dumpty cello. If you have to, if if there's some sort of trauma and you have to take the top off of a cello to fix something on the inside, not just on the top plate, but like if there's some major things going on in there, um, that is super fun if you are sufficiently caffeinated and if you have all the pieces. (laughs) So there's usually, there's always one or two cello bombs going at once. And I just, I, I love seeing everything come together into that final final um, state where it can be played and enjoyed yet again. Mm. Mm-hmm. So do you think there's any unique challenges to women in the field of theory, or perhaps just perceived challenges? I think absolutely there are challenges for women in this industry, but they're not unique. This is the same thing that women have been dealing with for decades and centuries, no matter what their profession. So um, what's different now is that more people are aware and more women are speaking out and standing up for themselves. Mm. Well, thank you for talking with me today. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. Again, Aubrey Alexander, cello maker and restorer, a member of the American Federation of Violin and Bow Makers. Yes. Graduated with honors from the VMSA Likes a lot of coffee, likes black cats, and playing pranks on Matt. Yeah. Oh, I'm really good at that last one. Yeah. Okay. Well, for our episode, I really would like to see some kind of picture on Instagram of a prank on Matt. Okay. That can happen. (laughs) 
Have a great day, Abby. Okay, have a good one. <laughs> Bye-bye. I've got two great luthiers here with me today. Robin Sullivan out of Evanston, Illinois, and Corinthia Klein, owner of Corinthian Violins out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Welcome, Robin and Corey. Hi. Nice to be here. Hi. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for being a part of this. It's great to talk to you. So what's on your bench right now? The computer that we're uh, recording through and my water stones because I sharpened my tools yesterday and did not clean up after myself. That was Robin speaking. <laughs> yes, this is Robin. <laughs> and and that's great because you've talked a lot about small victories of sometimes, some days you just have to keep your tools sharp. Yes. So I love that you led with that. <laughs> Yeah. What about you, Corey? Yeah, now I feel bad that all my tools are so dull. Um, <laughs> I should be sharpening my tools. Um, let's see. Well, I build at home, and I have three instruments I'm starting as a viola and two violins. Um, viola's on commission, the violin's for fun, and the other violin is for my daughter, um, who doesn't actually want it, but I'm building violins for her. Old, I already built one for her older sister, hmm. and I will be building one for her younger brother. And there's no way I'm paying therapy bills for not building the middle child a violin. <laughs> and then at work, I'm just sort of drowning in uh, rehairs at the moment. I feel you. It's that cold weather time where all the bows come in. Yeah, I've mostly learned to just close the store during a polar vortex. <laughs> every bow I did came back the next week when the weather turned normal yes yeah so never again that and and just for some people who this is a a strange world for you uh the bow and the bow hair are deeply affected by the changes in the humidity and the weather uh, I read somewhere that some places have such wild swings in the weather that you have to rehair your bow twice a year just because of that uh, because you can't get it tight enough or loose enough when the humidity changes. Yeah. So you're having fun with all that. <laughs> 40 below is not fun <laughs> for any. No, not for that or the instrument. There are a lot of mysterious cracks and pops coming from different corners of the workshop <laughs> during the <laughs> polar vortex. <laughs> you ladies have both worked together for years. And you both have made the same life choices that I have that have put you in this stage of constant juggling. Yes. Like me, you're, you're balancing kids and family and work. So tell me how you manage to do all the things at once. <laughs> Short answer. I, I didn't. <laughs> yeah. Tell me more, Robin. Yes. I don't manage all the things at once. Something gets dropped. It's really difficult trying to manage your professional career as well as manage small children and then just basic daily life stuff and then trying to keep your house clean and everyone fed and healthy and happy and during the really tough intense times when uh, my kids were infants and, and newborns and toddlers um, I almost didn't get any work done at all. It's starting to get better now that both of my kids are in school. That's my short answer. It, I don't balance at all. Something yeah. gets cut usually, unfortunately, usually it's violin work, which is why I've set myself up as a contractor for the most part at this particular uh, time. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because I remember very clearly how hard it was trying to do anything with 
really small kids. And I, I had the added fun of when my third child was born, my husband was deployed. So I was really on my own. But I still worked. I mean, I still had, I was working for a shop that let me do some work out of my home. And I did make at some point a conscious decision to make myself a viola. And I actually made a violin for somebody else that we bartered most of the work on the violin for her time watching my kids because I needed to kind of save my sanity. Um, (laughs) I was not feeling, especially with my husband gone and I was worried all the time and trying to handle, you know, my kids. And I realized I was kind of going uh, insane and I needed to be building um, to feel like myself. So I just carved time to do that between usually like midnight and three um, because I wasn't getting any sleep anyway. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And, you know, I did manage to make myself a viola and finish that violin and so forth. So I've always tried very consciously to make myself go into my shop. Mm-hmm. So, like right now, it's just even if it's just um, ten minutes, it doesn't really matter. As long as I'm just I'm in there, the odds of my actually getting to do something increase. Um, <laughs> I do know uh, it's always worth it. I'm always happier if I have some time to myself in my shop. I relate to all of this so much. Uh, having my own kid and not hardly giving myself any maternity leave because I I didn't want to let go of any control of what was happening at the shop. Uh, But then, you know, even the first 18 months of her life, I just brought her with me to work and I would make hiring decisions based on how good they were with kids. (laughs) And and, and we didn't do nearly the productivity I would have loved to have achieved at that time, but we, we soldiered on. (laughs) Yeah, it's hard. But when my when my son was three, um, my husband got deployed a second time, and by then we had our own store, and we just had a sign on it that said "Open by appointment or chance." <laughs> yeah, was that. Yeah. Luckily, our customers were very they're very loyal and they were very patient with us about having no hours. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, there was so little I could do with my son glued to my hip all the time. Absolutely. So Robin, you and I have talked and you've painted this great picture of early Robin Sullivan deciding to go to the Chicago school and waiting tables to save up money. Yep. You've already gone to college and you're saving money again to go technically to a trade school. Yes. What was that like explaining to friends the path you were pursuing? It wasn't difficult um, because I figured out when I was 18, before I went to undergrad, that I wanted to build and repair violins uh, for a career. I was at a a music camp that my teacher was one of the main teachers at. And at 18, I was too old to be a camper, so I was a counselor. And before every performance, something was happening where a uh, uh, instrument would get damaged. A door opened onto a cello and a fingerboard popped off. Uh, someone dropped a bow and the tip dro- uh, popped off. Mm-hmm. Um, sound posts were falling down. So all those things happening brought me to my epiphany that, hey, I, I want to know how to fix that. Hey, I want to know how to make violence. That's what I want to do. So once I figured that out, um, I was talking to my friends about it and they were all 
aware and uh, supportive. So when I went to undergrad, I just did a BA in music because that was the easiest. <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, I had already done an apprenticeship with um, the Luthier Jeffrey Ovington and co-made my first violin with him as a senior project. I did end up working in a shop right after I graduated as a um, admin assistant, not as a Luthier because no one else was willing to take on an apprentice. Um, I did not realize at the time how lucky I was to have met Jeffrey and how wonderful of a human being he is overall and an amazing luthier. His instruments are, um, they just sound excellent. Yeah. Yeah, it is super rare to be able to get an apprenticeship. Pretty much any place you walk into, they'll, they'll tell you you need to go to school first. Yes. So that was, that was great that you got to do that. I, yeah. And I did not realize at the time how lucky I was. Um, I quickly realized <laughs> when I started asking other people and they all started laughing at me and being like, no, you should go to school. <laughs> <laughs> so it was never an issue bringing that up to my friends. They're just like, oh, that's where your path is taking you now. Okay. <laughs> so let's bring you forward. So you've gone to school mm -hmm. and you're, you're working in a shop, but you're still having to wait tables for yes. a while to try to make yes. ends meet. Mm -hmm. Did it, did it ever feel like an unreachable goal to get to do this full time? Where I was at the time, it did feel unreachable. Yeah. Because where you are physically impacts your opportunity a lot, especially if you're looking to learn. I was in Milwaukee at the time and I worked with someone that Corinthia had, had worked with prior and he's, he is a very good maker and a bow maker, but, um, his, his personal life took precedent over his shop. So, you know, when he would have to leave for his kids, actually, um, things would be shut down and I couldn't do anything. And yeah, it was very, it was very depressing and felt very defeating to have to go back to wait tables. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but it never made me question my, choice of career or the path I was taking. I feel very lucky that I, once I figured out that this was what I wanted to do, nothing is going to deter me from doing it. I might slow down. I might take a sidetrack. I might have to do something else for a while, but I love um, making and, and just fixing and repairing instruments so much that it was never a question of dropping it or it being too difficult. I'm doing it no matter what. You had the itch in your hand. Yeah. <laughs> I've got to do it no matter what. Yes. You, can't, you can't stop me. I yes. don't care if you think I'm terrible. I'm doing it anyway. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> so during all this, Corey and Robin, you hadn't quite met yet. Corey, you're, you mentioned a little bit your husband being deplored, deployed in <laughs> Iraq. Deplored? <laughs> <laughs> you told me the story about one point he's deployed, not deplored, and you are in your third pregnancy and you had such bad sciatic nerve pain that you're crawling around on the floor um, and you were managing two other kids and you have a shop of your own. Uh, tell me a little bit more about all that. Uh, oh, that's such a fun nightmare to relive. Um <laughs> I didn't have any family in town and that first deployment, um, you know, I, cause I see he left when I was two months pregnant mm -hmm. he came back when the baby was about eight months old. Wow. So that's a big stretch of lots to do. Yeah. <laughs> and then there was, you know, my, 
let's see. So when he left, my daughters were four and two. So, you know, I had one that was in preschool and one that was home. And I think, I think the thing about raising children that's different from anything else really is just that, um, there are no, uh, choices you know there's no there's no option of being sick there's no option mm-hmm. uh, i mean I, I remember one point um when my son was really small like two months old and i had mastitis and i didn't know that's what i had i thought i had the flu i thought i was dying oh and i was just i was up all night with my son who was in my bed with me and my girls are sleeping and and i, I just remember lying there trying to figure out what to do because I had every blanket in the house on me and I was shivering and it doesn't make any difference to like the kid whose diaper still needs changing in the morning or you know none of that I still had to like feed children (laughs) and get one out the door and you know I mean so it was really it's frightening because you know it's, it's, it's a large amount of responsibility and there is no there's no always help you know um so I think that's sort of an extreme version of, you know, what parenting is like. But, I mean, the, the demands, the constant demands of parenting mm-hmm. are what make it a bigger challenge than just adding almost any other sort of responsibility into your yeah. life. Yeah. And I don't want to make this a downer or a cautionary tale uh, about trying to do it all. But... but I have no regrets about any of it. And, you know, I'm Absolutely. just sort of, I mean, that's, you know, that's just, that for me was like probably you know, the hardest moment, you know, I'm still really glad to have chosen, you know, to do what I do. I think I have a lot more flexibility than a lot of my friends did when they had children. They still had struggles with raising children and trying to do all that. But, um, but I have a lot of freedom by comparison. And even on days when I'm, I don't know, stuck doing rehairs and I'm very unhappy, I still am able to step back and say, oh, but look at all those other horrible things I'm not doing. (laughs) And I, I think as far as being able to actually raise children and do what I do, I've had a lot more flexibility. Yeah, I think that that is a, definitely a positive. If we're just going to talk about women um, in luthiery, there's, there's com- complications with some things. There's complications when most of the field is made up of small businesses and there's no HR team. But mm-hmm. <laughs> in, in my experience... I have never had some customer walked in and be confused that there was a child in my shop. And mm-hmm. and that's been nice to have a little bit of flexibility and have it understanding customers. Well, I know for me in my store, you know, we deal so much with rentals and children and so forth. I think it's kind of a relief for most of the people to come in and realize there's things their kids can touch that I'm yeah. do them away from everything. You know, I have I have a whole floor puzzle. Uh, it's like these Escher lizards, uh-huh. and I've told it. It takes the same amount of time for a kid to put all those lizards together as it does for the parent to fill out the rental. That's form. so perfect. <laughs> so, um, so for in a lot of cases, just having you know had children and understanding you know how they operate yeah. and what kinds of things they're inclined to destroy, and um, I you know I, I think I've set up my store in such a way that it's pretty. Mm-hmm accommodating and I think most of our customers actually really appreciate that because they don't have to feel yeah it's not this sterile untouchable 
scary environment. I want their kids to feel welcome. So since having a kid, I, I do have some things that I can pull out on a moment's notice to keep kids entertained. <laughs> but I did make this low shelf of like affordable kids toys. So when uh-huh. a, uh, a younger sibling can't rent a violin yet, there's other options, mm-hmm. but I'm going to have to rethink it because it gets really noisy really quickly. Yeah. yeah, there's a drum in Corey's shop that every once in a while, some kid just is drawn to that drum. <laughs> and uh, it gets really loud. Yeah. And yet I know where they are and I'd rather they be <laughs> That's true. That's all. true. Oh my gosh. So then you guys started working together. And even now, Robin, even though you live in a different city, you're near Chicago, correct? Yeah, I'm in Evanston. Yeah. It's the very first suburb north of the city line. How far away of a drive is that for you guys? Hour 15, hour 20 minutes, which isn't bad at all in the Chicago area. So you still visit up there to do some work? Yeah, like two or three days out of the month. Yeah, yeah, not enough. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> totally not enough, but I'll take it. How is working for Corey different from some of your previous jobs? Corey is a delight. <laughs> I love you, Corey. Should I leave? It is on the record. <laughs> I actually met Corey when I first moved to Milwaukee because uh, we moved to Milwaukee shortly after I graduated the Chicago School of Violin Making. Um, my husband had a job with a company whose headquarters were in Milwaukee, so that's why we moved there. And Corey had met Becky Elliott, who was one of my teachers at the Chicago School. And when I told Becky I'd be moving to Milwaukee, she's like, you need to go introduce yourself to Corey. She's lovely. The tricky thing, like for me in my shop is I don't need somebody to assist me, really. I need somebody to kind of be me. Yes. So I can go. And like Robin, like, I don't know how I lucked out with Robin, but you know, she's got, you know, same kind of training. She also plays viola. You know, she has now experience being a mom. She's got, so, you know, all the things that I can normally, you know, (laughs) relate to and handle with people, you know, she can just do. Yeah. You need to trust that the cello bridge that needs replacing is going to be taken care of with the standard of excellence that you would have when you did it. Yeah. Yeah. And the tricky thing when Robin walked into my shop was that I knew she'd just come straight out of school and mm-hmm. I'd spent enough time working in a repair shop to know that she didn't know enough to just, I couldn't just let her loose with the things I needed her to do. Oh no, I was terrible at bridges at that point. <laughs> <laughs> I sent her off to where I learned and I said, it'll, you'll cry and it'll be frustrating, but you'll learn a lot. And when you know enough, then come back. And that was like, what, two years? Yeah, I did two years. Yeah, so she did two two years of hard labor, and then she came <laughs> She's dedicated. Uh, and by then, yeah, and by then I knew, you know, if I asked her to dress a board, I knew to what standard she could dress a board, and it wasn't going to be an issue. So, um, so that worked out really nicely, because by the time she had gotten all of that training under her belt, you know, I mean... She's, she's like a better version of me to leave with Yay. the store, so it's great. <laughs> yeah, so I think I was maybe pregnant when I first started working for you part-time. Mm-hmm. I think so. I'm pregnant with Cooper, my son, uh, Cooper. He's now six Oh, yes, I didn't ask you um, about your, your peak luthier mom moment. um yeah I was um when I was pregnant with Cooper I was also making instruments at the time I did manage to make a violin in the white I had to make these instruments because after being totally 
destroyed um, uh, trying to learn repair and restoration and set up. There was a lot of, um, uh, I, I was insulted a lot <laughs> and my work was questioned every time, all the time, every yeah, day. I did, I did warn you. <laughs> yes, I, you did. I was real honest. I said you would cry. You gave me that fair warning. And I had a similar shop experience prior to this one that had slightly prepared me. Um, but I had to get back into making because like Corey said, I, I feel like I can connect back to myself really when I can get in that headspace where it's just you and the instrument and I can find myself and, and work. So um, after I quit that job, I made a violin in the white and started a viola in the white. I did this all while I was pregnant. And uh, one time, I think I was working on the viola and I was leaning over to carve the F holes. I was about seven months pregnant. And uh, Cooper's big baby. <laughs> he was born. He was eight pounds even and 21 inches. So at seven months, I was already quite large. And leaning over, squashed him in my belly. And he did not like that. And he would kick me very sharply and painfully in the oh. ribs after about 10 minutes of being squished. So I would have to stand up and stretch and let him stretch. I could feel him. <laughs> Like just totally stretching out when I stood up and then I would sit back down and go back to carving the apples. And in another 10 minutes, he'd kick me in the ribs and we would repeat that cycle. I think until I finished the apples uh, an hour or two later, I love that. <laughs> but that was the easy part of being a mom. Like when they're in their belly, it's harder when they come out. Yes. <laughs> well, you, Robin, mm-hmm. without saying it, you kind of alluded to problematic small business environments. Um, Yes. <laughs> uh, and uh, so both of you last fall, I believe it was November for the Violin Society of America, you along with Marilyn Wallen, who is coming up next in my interview, you did a panel together where you talked about discrimination in the workplace. Tell me a little bit about what you experienced. Um, what well, was interesting? Um, <laughs> um I don't know. It's it's an important topic. I think we mostly need to learn how to have a discussion. Um, I mostly wanted to introduce the idea of you know how to talk about these things because I think women do face different challenges in this kind of workplace. I mean, there really isn't a man who's had to deal with someone kicking him in the ribs while doing f holes from the inside. <laughs> um, that's different. Um, and to to talk about what occurred, you had a lot of women share anonymous stories about things that had happened yes. to them in the workplace. Yeah, varying levels of, um, of harassment and assault. Um, and uh, it was tough getting the stories initially. A lot of people didn't want to talk. And there was concern that if these stories came out, people would be able to figure out uh, who was being discussed. Uh, and my response to that was, if people can figure it out, then it hasn't been a secret. And I think things generally are moving in the right direction. But I agree with Corey that we need to figure out how to talk to each other more effectively um, before we can really dig into this topic and come up with effective solutions, um, which is really hard because our businesses are so small. Um, and the mom and pop shops, there's no HR and there's only two people. And, um, these are big issues that are very difficult to attack in a small business environment. 
Yeah. Plus, you know, luthiers in general, I mean, you tend to have, this is a slightly more introverted crowd. Um, uh, yeah. People mm-hmm. who are, you know, maybe a little more isolated from one another than people are in other professions. So I think sometimes when you bring up, um, you know, a complicated topic or something that's, you know, upsetting, but, you know, you're not seeing it in your house, you know, um, you know, it can make you defensive. Sure. That's an excellent point. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of misunderstandings just because people are so quick to um, just, you know, protect themselves or they don't want to necessarily think those things are happening or um so i think it would be nice if we could find a way that people didn't like i was surprised on uh, the thread online how how many people were quick to just uh jump to conclusions about me or my character and and i was like well what did i do <laughs> um that was very it was very confusing because i thought well that's peculiar you know um i i think maybe like for instance like if if people are um you know, have a comment or want to respond, maybe they need to step back for just a second and say, okay, am I talking about the actual topic? Mm-hmm. Am I simply trying to discredit this other person so that I don't have to deal with the topic? I mean, I mean that's just good advice for online interaction in general. <laughs> just practicing that. <laughs> Being nice. Which is ignored yeah. most of the time. <laughs> I think, you know, as more and more women enter this profession, I think it, you know, I think it does... I think it's good for the profession, first of all. Um, and it, it, as soon as it's not an odd thing. I mean, when I started violin making school, it was an odd thing. You know, I, I, in the first school I started in, I was the only woman. And then there was a second woman. And then I had enough of the mess that was that school. And I I wrote to like 40 different builders out of like the Strad Guide and said, anyone willing to take me on? And that's how I found Brian Derber. Um, who had taught at the Chicago school. So I got like a private version of the Chicago school education and then he got his school accredited. So that's now, you know, the new world school of Island making. But, um, but I was really lucky to be able to find somebody, you know, who didn't bat an eye that, you know, a woman wanted to do that sort of work. Um, and he was also a stay at home parent. I mean, I, I, I spent my whole apprenticeship with little kids at our feet. And that was, that was part of my education. I mean, that, that helped me see that was possible to do. Yeah. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? I think, well, since I'm the only one whose children are older, my kids are now like 17, 15, and 12. So for I would, I would like to suggest that um, it does get easier in some ways. I sure. mean, a lot of stuff becomes a lot more possible. I mean, my oldest, we actually, you know, we, I built her a violin, and she actually... Uh, helped do like the blocks and um, bits of planing and she, so she actually got to have her hands in that instrument I love it played. and I mean that's pretty magical and wonderful and so I mean so it doesn't so just you know so in case I scared anybody <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it does it does get better and it doesn't um, it doesn't have to be uh, it doesn't have to be that complicated sometimes I mean there are ways to Make it work if you want to make it work. I just want to say, as someone who waited so long, I was 35 before I had my child, and I was afraid of doing it all at once. I just want to say to women out there who are hesitant, you can do it because you are a woman, and that means you are made of steel. So 
do all the things <laughs> you can and you can't do it all at once on the same day. No. <laughs> yeah. No, I <laughs> <But> you can. <laughs> That's Yeah. No, you totally can. Yeah. You totally can. It's just and there's no and you know, if you're putting it off, I mean there's there's no good No, time. never. <laughs> no. Mm-mm. Yeah. You do have to make a lot of conscious decisions. <laughs> yes. Um, but but like like Corey said, um some of the upsides, I think it's great um when my kids are interested in what I'm doing. My son in particular is really interested. Um he has helped me operate my tabletop bandsaw. He's worked with one of my block planes and got a basswood block uh, flat and square on two sides at nice. the age of six. <laughs> <laughs> He's helped me mix plaster of Paris for sound post patch casts. And I've let him shave down uh, boxwood um, bushing stock uh, for, for doing peg bushings and stuff. So it's always nice when I can get the kids, when they're interested and I can give them a job that they can do. And that's appropriate and uh, makes them happy for five minutes. <laughs> and, uh, my daughter, Fiona, she's three, so she's not as involved yet. But when um, I did one of, I've done two of Joe Robeson's varnish workshops. And when I was still thick in the varnish workshop at home and was frequently polishing out all the coats, I would hand her one of the instruments I was working on and just be like, here, here's some, here's some uh, micro mesh sandpaper, go to town. <laughs> It's fine. You're three. You won't do anything nice. too bad. <laughs> yeah, it's so fun when you see your children also get itchy fingers to to work and create. Mm-hmm. I, I've really enjoyed that myself. Well, I didn't mean to make this whole interview all about having children, but since we have all had to juggle all that, I thought that would be fun for us to cover. And Corinthia Klein, Robin Sullivan, I appreciate you so much talking to me today. Well, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks. Uh, And uh, good luck on your bench work out there and keep being awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Jerry, do you have any luthier heroes who just happen to be women? Well, I I certainly do. When I first started meeting people in the profession about 10 years ago, the people whom were the top flight, badass, lone wolf, small business uh, instrument restorers happened to be women. And so uh, I I met early on uh, Stacey Stiles, Shirley White, and Sharon Q. And I thought to myself, gosh, these people are, are doing something that maybe if when I grow up someday, I can do that. And that looks pretty awesome. So yeah, I'd, I'd say women in this field have had a, a massive influence on me. I am so happy to know that there's not just women in the field, but there's also role models. Absolutely. And more recently, I, I've, I've met people like uh, Iris Carr, who should be teaching at Hogwarts oh, rather than teaching yeah. the rest of us. And she is a magician. Yeah. And my, my dear friend, Elian LeBlanc, who is a total, total badass. not only, you know, at the bench working on violins, but in all other aspects of craft and in business, people like Elizabeth shock, whom I admire a lot for the way they run their shop. 
So their role models, first and foremost, and the fact that they're women is almost inconsequential. They're just great. I've met some really exceptional people. I met a lot of women who couldn't make the recording. And uh, I am kind of overwhelmed with just the general badassery of this community. Mm-hmm. And I can't wait to uh, keep meeting more and more of these Absolutely. lovely women. Absolutely. And, and, you know, some of you dudes, too. We're okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, one more thing. Could you, Do you remember, you know, me and Chris, we were trying to talk about, like, the, the plates and the the dude like yeah talking about Uh, cladney patterns that was the phrase you were trying to come up with patterns Mm -hmm. uh the dude ernst cladney yeah okay okay now let me see if i can try to explain this better okay wish me luck good luck okay 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 so you got like some sand but it's like dark colored sand so you can see it against the violin you took the top plate off the violin you've got it and you put some sand on it and you play a note against it, whether it's like a speaker underneath or some people like run a bow across it. And the sand moves to the places on the plate that are not vibrating. They stay in the stillest parts. They move away from the vibrating parts. And, you know, based on what tone you're playing, whether it's like an A or a C, it'll make different patterns on that plate. And, and so this guy came up with like reasons why it's good for it to be a certain pattern for a certain note. Did I do it? That sounds good enough for me. Uh, okay. <laughs> I, I think, yeah, I'm, I'm sure people will still write in. It's inevitable. Problem. Yeah. Someone correct us. I, I think we're yeah. maybe fumbling our way towards the answer. Well, the people <laughs> I know in this day and age who are doing a lot with acoustics, they, I mean, it's such a varied field. And so you'll find people doing impact tests, um, you know, with the whole instrument and and not so much with a free plate or they're doing um, string reciprocity testing or they're doing uh, who knows what by the light of the full moon, you know, carved by gnomes or something like that. I I don't know. There's mad scientists galore. Yeah. And it's truthfully speaking, it's not my area of expertise, but I'm, I'm glad that people are out there going forth and learning as much as they can. Well, okay. I'm glad we finally got to the bottom of that and then cannot wait for all the letters. <laughs> but... Yeah. There... <laughs> There's going to be letters. There's going to be lots of letters. Don't worry. But speaking of that, please do reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love your feedback. Mail at omopod.com. Uh, let us know what you thought about this. Let us know your Lady Luthier heroes uh, questions for other episodes next month. We've got Luthier versus Luthier coming up mm. and cannot wait to it's get to that fun. one. It's going to be super fun. Be we super had a fun. prize. Someone won the prize. I've already delivered it. Tune in next time. Thank you, everybody. I hope you all had a happy mother's day. And if you are a mother, I hope you had a wonderful woman's day celebrating being a woman. Yay. (laughs) And remember, uh, don't be like Chris when helping your friend build a base. I fucked it up.
Invoke Sound plays our theme music.